This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Following the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from the Great White North and his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard. Welcome once again to another episode of Strange Planet. Thanks as always for sticking me in your ear. And just a reminder, if you'd like to dig deeper into Strange Planet, you might think about becoming a premium subscriber. It's real easy to do. Just click on the link in the episode description, strangeplanet.supportingcast.fm, strangeplanet.supportingcast.fm. And there are three subscription programs to choose from. Choose the one that's right for you. You can gain access to commercial free listening. You can get bonus episodes and a subscription to my free monthly newsletter, Inner Sanctum, strangeplanet.supportingcast.fm. On this episode, we're going to delve into forbidden archaeology, human devolution, consciousness, and the Vedas. And we're going to do that with a, a giant in the field, Michael Cremo, also known as the forbidden archaeologist, is hailed as a groundbreaking research pioneer and international authority on archaeological anomalies. His landmark bestseller, Forbidden Archaeology, first published in 1993 and has been translated into nearly 30 languages. It challenged the very foundation of Darwinian evolution. Michael continues to dig up enigmatic discoveries in the fossil record and shake up accepted paradigms exploring famous archaeological sites around the world journeying to a sacred to uh, sacred places in india appearing on national tv shows in the united states and other countries lecturing on mainstream science conferences or speaking to alternative gatherings of global intelligentsia and uh speaking of which he will be appearing at stairway to the stars that is happening november the 10th, 11th, and 12th on the Las Vegas Strip at the uh, beautiful Luxor, uh, Luxor uh, Hotel. And I believe Michael will be appearing on the Sunday. That's November the 12th. Michael Cremo, welcome to Strange Planet. How are you? I'm fine. How's the Strange Planet? <laughs> <laughs> well, as you well know, I don't need to tell you. It's, uh, it's not only stranger than... Uh, we imagine it's stranger than we can imagine. Um, let's just uh, talk for a minute about Stairway 
to the uh, the stars again you're appearing on uh november the 12th that's at the luxar hotel um i'm guessing in the egyptian ballroom and uh in las vegas so what is what are you going to be talking about all of the well, things we're going to talk about tonight well i don't want to give away the whole no whole talk but oh, no uh, I'm going to be talking about uh, some mainstream scientists who are at least beginning to think about the idea that there may have been a very ancient, advanced technological civilization on this planet, perhaps going back many hundreds of millions of years back to the geological period called the Silurian. So that's kind of interesting, and I'm going to give some details uh, about that. It's uh, kind of a, a new thing because mainstream scientists have generally ignored the evidence for extreme human antiquity that's come to light. That's uh, that's really, you know, what we're talking about in a nutshell, extreme ancient antiquity um, when it comes to advanced human civilization. Um, let's talk about sort of the traditional human evolutionary timeline. So the earth uh, is four and a half billion years old. Um, modern humans supposedly originate in Africa within what, the last 200,000 years? And Maybe 300,000. Some of them are prepared to say these days. Right, right. Okay, so let's... Let's give the alternative uh, human evolutionary timeline, according to your research. Well, uh, when I look at all the evidence, not just what's in today's textbooks, but when you look at all the scientific reports from archaeologists, geologists, other scientists digging into the earth, you get an entirely different picture. You find many reports of human bones, human artifacts, human footprints going back far, far, far further back in time than two or 300,000 years. And in some cases, many millions of years, even hundreds of millions of years. So the pattern that emerges is not one of evolution of human beings from more primitive ape-like uh, creatures, but rather one of coexistence of humans like us with creatures resembling uh, different species of what could be called ape men, or they're called technically hominids, Australopithecus, Homo erectus, Homo habilis. They've got different names for them, more recently Homo delady, the Denisovans, and creatures like that. So, uh, basically, humans like us have been coexisting with them for vast periods of time. And that's what I'd expect to find if our universe actually has a purpose. I think it's kind of like a, a virtual reality uh, system that we're in to learn some things and to understand what our real nature is. So I think given that purpose, and the fact that these things can be understood in the human form of life means the human form of life has always been available for conscious selves who are 
finding themselves in this virtual reality system that we call our universe. So can you um, give some examples of um, evidence of modern humans coexisting with what are supposed to be our, our, our ancestors, but you're, you know, that that's not quite right, but give me some examples of, of, uh, evidence, uh, whether we're talking about, um, I don't know, footprints or bone fragments or, or something like that. Yeah. Well, I'll give some examples that are fairly close to what modern science is now prepared to accept. Uh, in 2016, there was a team of archaeologists working at Ulduvai Gorge in the country of Tanzania and East Africa. And they found in an excavation a finger bone. Now, th this may seem like a, a minor detail, but it's kind of significant for what it shows about how scientists look at evidence. They analyzed the finger bone. It was actually the proximal phalanx of the fifth finger. In other words, this, you know, the little fingers made up of three bones. The first one is called the proximal bone. So they discovered that bone and they analyzed it very carefully. It was found in layers of rock 1,800,000 years old. That's around the time Australopithecus was existing. But they carefully studied this finger bone, and they found it was different from any Australopithecus finger bone that they had found. It was different from all species of apes and monkeys. And they also compared it with a sample of modern human finger bones, and they saw that it fit in the modern human finger bone group, not in any of the hominins or uh, other species of apes and monkeys. But uh, they said, this, is, this finger bone is most like that of Homo sapiens, modern Homo sapiens, in other words, like us. But we can't call it that because of its age, 1,800,000 years. So this is a, a, a case where they find evidence that humans like us were coexisting with Australopithecus 1,800,000 years ago. But because of what I call knowledge filtering, they, they can't bring themselves to, to say that. I mean, they directly said this in their scientific report. We looked at this finger bone. It's different from Australopithecus. It's 1,800,000 years old. It looks like Homo sapiens, but we can't call it that. So this goes on all the time. If it only happened once or twice, you could maybe excuse it. But when it happens hundreds of times, or like the case of the Laetoli footprints, also discovered in East Africa by Mary Leakey in 1979. She looked at the footprints in her original scientific report. She said, these are just like 
anatomically modern human footprints. Other scientists also agreed. Paleontologist Tim White said, there's no mistake about it. They're just like the footprints that you or I would make if we were walking on a beach today. Uh, but they didn't accept that they were made by human beings like us. They thought, well, well, there must have been some kind of ape man, some hominin, some species of Australopithecus that was living uh, around 3.7 million years ago. That was the age of the formation of which these footprints were found. You know, so again, they were thinking, how can we explain this without bringing in the forbidden idea that humans like us were coexisting with these ape, ape man-like creatures? You know, they scientists have actually discovered, discovered the foot bones of Australopithecus, and they did not have a foot exactly like a modern human foot. You know, they're first toe would kind of move out to the side like uh, the human thumb on the finger. The other toes were also kind of long. You know, their foot structure was more like that of a chimpanzee than a modern human being. So these are just a couple of fairly recent examples. Uh, but if you want to go really far back in time, we could look at the California gold mine discoveries that were made in uh, the mid-19th century during the gold rush days in California. Miners were coming from all over the place to dig into the sides of mountains for the gold. But they were finding in their mining tunnels human bones and human artifacts in layers of rock that modern geologists tell us are about 50 million years old. So uh, you know, you've got discoveries like that. Why were they re rejected? I mean, they were reported to the scientific world by Dr. J.D. Whitney, who was a Harvard University-educated geologist who was the chief geologist of the state of California. And he published uh, a massive study about these discoveries. But they were rejected by other scientists because they contradicted the theory of evolution. So, as I said, if this happened just a few times, well, Maybe you could say, well, yeah, there are a few anomalies, but the vast majority of evidence supports you know, the standard view of things. But we're not talking about just one or two. There are literally hundreds of these discoveries. Yeah, it, it begs the question how these cases managed to slip past the gatekeepers uh, because you mentioned, you know, knowledge filtering which I guess now maybe they've perfected this and, and uh, you know, these types of reports aren't going to get, aren't going to break through or do they, I mean, are, are we continuing to see these reports coming, coming forward or have they got it pretty well perfected this, you know, knowledge filtering and locking these, these stories away. So nobody, nobody can see them again. Well, I think that does go on. 
but a lot of it is kind of unconscious in, in the sense that they that was the significance of the first case that I mentioned, which is fairly recent, where scientists find something. You know, they're looking at it. It's staring them right in the face. You know, like the finger bone, they analyze it. It's human in shape and form. It's not like anything else. You know, it's it should set off alarm bells in their heads. But because of this knowledge filtering process, because they're so committed to their current paradigm and they're not able to think outside the box, they think, how can we make this fit? Uh, you know, it, it's just really amazing sometimes. Uh, the, the the links they'll go to to not question question the paradigm, but somehow or other make it fit by saying, "Well, you know, maybe there was some kind of ape man back at that time who did have a human-like finger bone or a human-type footprint." It's the the other way they get around it say in the california case of the california gold mine discoveries well there must have been some hoax there must have been they must have the artifacts must have slipped down through some fissure there were some earth movements that changed things around and you know, if you're going to proceed in a scientific way, you can't just give a list of possible ways in which something could be wrong. You actually have to prove that in this particular case, yes, there was a fissure, you know, that could, through which artifacts of the type that were found could have slipped down that fissure into the place where they were discovered. Or if you're going to claim it's a mistake or a hoax, well, identify the person who committed the hoax. You know, and if you have five or ten different hoax stories, how do you know if any of them are true? You know, it's uh, it's kind of a, you know, I've encountered this again and again. You know, when I bring these cases up to people in you know, the scientific world, especially the world of archaeology, one of the first things they do is give a list of possible ways in which something could could be wrong. I mean, I mean, once I responded to one archaeologist who was making such a case that, well, for all I know, you could be a, a holographic projection from Mars. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you want to talk about what, I mean, anything is possible. But, um, Michael Cremo. Go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to sort of reset, reintroduce. Michael Cremo is uh, with us. And, of course, the groundbreaking work of the hidden history of the human race, forbidden archaeology. Divine Nature, a Spiritual Perspective on the Environmental Crisis, Forbidden Archaeology's Impact, Human Devolution, the Forbidden Archaeologist, the Atlanta Rising, My Science, My Religion, 
academic papers, and uh, he will be appearing at Stairway to the Stars at the Luxor Hotel, uh, November uh, the 12th, Sunday, November the 12th. However, the um, the conference, Stairway to the Stars, is running for three days, Friday the 10th, Saturday the 11th, and again, Sunday the 12th of November, disclosurefest.org. For more information, disclosurefest.org. Uh, uh, we'll take a quick time out, come back, and continue to discuss. Stay with us. The truth will set you free. 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 But first, it will really tick you off. Welcome back to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Michael Cremo is with us. Um, I think the... The one example you gave where human remains were found in strata that were dated about 50 million years. What is the earliest indication that uh, this race were tool users? Um, they, the, among the artifacts that were found in these layers were obsidian spear points and Obsidian is a very difficult uh, material to work. It's like volcanic glass, really. But so it takes uh, quite a bit of intelligence to manufacture a spear point or an arrowhead out of obsidian. Uh, if if it, if they're able to do it, they're really quite effective because it's, it's quite sharp. So. Uh, but, you know, it's kind of interesting. Uh, as far as technology goes, some discoveries go back to the hundreds of millions of years. Uh, of course, the further back you go in time, the more scarce the discoveries become. Because if you look at the geological history of the Earth, uh, due to plate tectonics and things like that, layers of rock are being destroyed, you know, so it's not that we have the complete record, you know, especially as you go further and further back in time. You know, there are some geologists that say that over the vast periods of time that the Earth has existed, about 95 to 90 percent of the sedimentary layers, which is the layers in which you would find fossils and artifacts have been destroyed. So uh, another factor to consider is like our, our high tech stuff, you know, like laptop computers and cell phones, cars, jets, all that stuff doesn't last very long in the geological record. We tend to think it's pretty solid stuff, but most metals will oxidize, plastics will dissolve eventually over, over the course of hundreds of thousands or, or millions of years. And, you know, but stone tools and weapons still persist in time. So I don't think we're getting a complete record of uh, what past civilizations were capable of 
because a lot of that high tech stuff doesn't last very long in in the geological record. So even though, say, 50 million years ago in California, some people were using obsidian spear points, stone mortars and pestles, other people may have been using more advanced technologies that simply haven't come down to us to the present day. And the only way that you might recognize it is by, say, doing some chemical analysis. And if you can find uh, remains of compounds that don't naturally occur in nature, you could say, okay, they had some type of advanced technology. And it's just survived as some remnants of some metals that they may have used. So according to this timeline, is would this suggest that the history of modern man on this planet is, is um, one that uh, begins perhaps as a primitive civilization. It rises to a certain apex of technological advancement. Then the, some, I don't know, cataclysmic event occurs and it's like hitting the reset button. It starts again from a primitive standpoint, rises again, falls. And that is the history of, of, of humankind on this planet rising and falling from primitive to technological advanced civilizations? Yes, uh, that's certainly what a lot, a lot of the people in the ancient wisdom traditions thought. The Greeks and Romans certainly thought that. Plato said civilizations have come and gone, risen and fallen many times in the long history of the earth. Aristotle said the same thing. Ancient Egyptian priest said the same thing. Uh, and yeah, I'm a follower of the Vedic tradition. And it, it also has uh, periodic catastrophes that take place. They kind of match up in some ways with uh, what uh, modern paleontologists call extinction events. You know, they say there have been in the long history of the Earth over the past couple of billion years, maybe five or six, the number varies slightly, uh, major extinction events, the last one being uh, the asteroid that struck the Earth and wiped out the dinosaurs and a whole bunch of other species. So... Yeah, I, I think there have been periodic catastrophes that have uh, destroyed human civilizations that have existed on this planet. But I think there's a system in the universe, kind of like something like cloud computing. You know, if you have a device, you know, a cell phone or a laptop or a tablet, you can store your files, your songs, your videos, your pictures, everything in the cloud so that if your device becomes inoperable, you can get a new device and download everything from the cloud. So I think there's an arrangement, something like that. There are beings who exist at higher levels of the universe that are beyond the, these periodic devastations that take place on our level. And they have 
the resources to, you could say, reboot the system, download the the information for, you know, body plans and things like that. So I think that that has gone on for the whole history of the cosmos. And, you know, I, I think there are these vast cycles of creation and destruction that go on and on and on. They're endless, which makes me somewhat different than uh, either a modern scientist or a creationist in the sense that I think it's always been here. It's always been going on. You mentioned um, when we were talking about, you know, some event that hit the reset button on on um, technological advancement and, and, and civilizations and so forth. And you mentioned cataclysmic events as being the reset. Um, would that include ancient nuclear war? Uh, that is something that could have happened if we look at, uh, I mean, when I look at the ancient Sanskrit histories, they speak of weapons that resemble modern nuclear weapons. They were called brahmastras. When they would be set off, it would be like, they would say like 10,000 suns in one place, you know? And I mean, as I mean, many people know now because of the film about Robert Oppenheimer, you know, he was aware of some of these statements in the Vedic literature and when the first atomic bomb was tested at Alamogordo in New Mexico, when it went off, he started reciting some of those texts. Now I become but, death. Yeah. It's uh uh well, it's kind of interesting, you know, that after the atomic bombs were set off at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, he and Einstein and some other atomic scientists got together and formed an organization that put out what they call the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. And in 1947, they started something called the Doomsday Clock. And they were kind of worried about how close the world was getting to a nuclear war. Because immediately after America developed an atomic weapon, Russia developed one, and you know, it looked pretty bad. So they set the doomsday clock to 20 minutes to midnight, midnight being nuclear catastrophe. This year, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists set the clock at 90 seconds to midnight. And they said, this is the closest the world has gotten to nuclear war than it ever has before. I think many people don't realize this, but, you know, I mean, I'm a kind of an old guy. I kind of went through the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Berlin Wall Crisis, this crisis and that crisis. But they say this is the situation we're in right now is worse than that. Mm. 
Um, you mentioned Oppenheimer. I don't know if this is an apocryphal story, but supposedly he was asked after the detonation uh, at uh, Trinity, something to the effect, is this the first nuclear explosion you've ever or that's ever occurred or something? And he said something to the effect, um, not in my life or yes, in my lifetime, in my lifetime, suggesting again that there were perhaps ancient nuclear conflagrations. Um, do, do we know if that story is true? Did he actually say that? Well, the way I heard it was, he said, the first in modern times. Ah. It it seems to, I don't know if that was documented on a television show or videotape, because some of his statements about Bhagavad Gita, you know, the Sanskrit text that has that uh, verse in it about time I am, I've become destroyer of everything. You know, that that is on videotape. This other statement, I'm not quite sure if it's on videotape or not. I'd have to look at it again. But it's I've, I, I'm fairly certain that he did say it. And I've mentioned that case just as you have. Any other evidence um, for a an ancient nuclear war on Earth? Well... I've heard reports that at a place called Mahenjo-Daro, which is now in Pakistan, but it's a, a city that dates back to what they call the Harappan civilization or the Indus Valley civilization that existed 5,000 years ago, you know, around that time. And... I've seen reports that uh, outside that place, they've done, yeah, you know, there's high levels of radioactivity and that some of the, uh, some of the places have this green glass that is, you know, like when you set off an atomic weapon, it turns the sand and rock into a glass-like material. So I haven't been able to verify that. You know, I mean, you, you see lots of reports like that. Uh, there is a place in Africa where some people claim there's a natural nuclear uh, reaction going on, but Maybe that's not an ongoing natural thing, but the remnants of some, as you were saying, ancient nuclear war. Well, according to the, the Sanskrit text, when did this nuclear war take place, if that's in fact what it was? Well, this has, if you go through the text, you'll find several references to weapons like this being used the most recent ones are about 5,000 years ago at the time of what's called the Kurukshetra War, which is described in the Mahabharata. Uh, it's, that's there 
And there are other accounts in the Vedic text of use of such weapons going back much further in time. So, uh, yeah, there, there are examples like that. Michael, we'll take another quick time out. Michael Cremo stays with us, the author of Forbidden Archaeology. Back with more in a moment. This is Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Follow Richard on Twitter at Richard Serrett. For show information, visit the website strangeplanet.ca. Michael Cremo is with us, and again, he will be appearing at the Stairway to the Stars conference. That's happening on the Las Vegas Strip at the Luxor Hotel, uh, November. <clears throat> excuse me, November tenth, eleventh, and twelfth. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Michael will be speaking on Sunday, the twelfth, and uh, you can get more information at disclosurefest.org. Disclosurefest.org. Um. So if modern man has always walked the earth for perhaps hundreds of millions of years, uh, and we are to then sort of throw this whole idea of, of human evolution, where did we come from? Well, that's a, a great question. It's a question many people ask me after they read the book Forbidden Archaeology. You know, they, they said, okay, you've got all this evidence that contradicts the current theories. What's your explanation? And I tried to answer that question in the book Human Devolution, a Vedic alternative to Darwin's theory. And what I propose there is that, you know, be, before we even ask the question, where did human beings come from? We should first of all ask the question, what is a human being? And I would say that uh, we are beings of pure consciousness. That's what we really are. And what we call the human body is a vehicle for that conscious self. Now, most scientists today wouldn't agree with that. They would say consciousness is just produced by chemicals interacting in the brain. You know, there are neurons there. They they are kind of like a computer network and, you know, you've got some kind of advanced networking going on and it produces consciousness, but only temporarily at the time of death, they say, when chemicals in the brain become disorganized, no more consciousness. I don't accept that. I think nobody has really shown how you can get consciousness out of chemicals. I mean, they say it, but nobody's demonstrated it. And that means to me, the conscious self consciousness can exist apart from the brain, apart from the body. So as conscious, intelligent, personal, individual beings, which we all are, and it's something we can directly experience, it's not a matter of belief. Everyone can experience, I'm conscious, I'm an individual, I'm a person. It's the most real fact of our existence. So I think that 
consciousness persists, it exists apart from the body, apart from the mind. So as, as conscious beings, we don't evolve up from matter. I would say we devolve or come down from some level of the cosmos that is dominated by pure consciousness. And we come down to this level and get covered by uh, mind and matter. And those coverings are what we call a body. So I, I think that the bodies, I mean, we're in a human body now, but there's many other types of bodies available. There's bird bodies, insect bodies, dinosaur bodies, fish bodies, bird bodies, all kinds of bodies that we could occupy. But the human, in the human vehicle, we have an opportunity to understand what our real position is and qualify ourselves to attain a position on that higher level of the cosmos where there's no limitations of the kind that are imposed upon conscious beings in this world, uh, having uh, temporary vehicles that come into existence, last about 100 years maximum, and then disintegrate. You know, it's... Uh, uh, and we know we're not meant for that. I think deep in our hearts, every one of us isn't really satisfied with being in a position where we're constantly dealing with something that's a vehicle that's coming into existence, disintegrating. Again, of course, I'm a big believer in reincarnation, that you know, the, the self will go on in another vehicle, uh, hopefully human, but maybe not necessarily. So I think th this whole system is something that's been set up for an educational purpose, for us to learn these lessons. And it's almost like if you have... If we put a space station into outer space, you know, we don't just hope that somehow or other the chemicals inside the space station are going to combine together and form some first living thing that will gradually evolve and become an astronaut. No, we put the space station up because we've got astronauts that we're going to put in there right from the beginning. You know, so I think our universe or spaceship earth or our galaxy or whatever it is has a purpose and it has something to do with consciousness and the human form of life so i think the human form of life has always been available if we accept uh, this paradigm uh of um the, the the our timeline here on earth and and accept that this is what we are and who we are uh, or if it could ever be proven how does this change things here on on earth well it changes things in a big way because 
our values and goals and objectives in life are pretty much determined by how we identify ourselves. And for many centuries, scientists have been telling us we're machines made of molecules in competition with each other for survival. In other words, they're giving us a very materialistic sense of identity. Uh, and therefore, it's not surprising that people's values and goals and objectives in life are quite materialistic. I think people think, well, to got to work, you know, got to produce, consume more and more material things. That's our purpose. And, it, and we do it not just individually, but in terms of vast competing groups. And that process of material production and consumption and competition and conflict generates a lot of wealth. And it flows into certain pockets in a not exactly fair way. So there are huge institutions that have been built up, financial institutions, political institutions, military institutions, educational institutions, scientific institutions that are all based on keeping this sense of identity intact. And because of it, people naturally behave in ways that can be they can be manipulated, they can be exploited, they can be put into conflict with each other. So if we had a different sense of identity, I'm a being of pure consciousness, you're a being of pure consciousness, we're all beings of pure consciousness, no need to divide ourselves up into co competing, conflicting groups on the basis of superficial identities like nationality, race, whatever, religion, even. Um, we can find out how to satisfy our material needs in the most simple, natural, efficient, and fair way possible while putting most of our human energy into developing our resource of consciousness. And trying to raise consciousness to the state where it completely transcends all of the limitations that are imposed upon conscious selves on this level of reality. So it's, uh, you would have a different, a different culture, a different set of institutions that would be quite different than those today. And there, I think there are a lot of forces in the world that don't want to see that happen. They want to keep things as they are, keep everybody as you know in the rat race so to speak because they profit from it and they benefit from it what do you suppose is the best way to lift this veil um or this lid of secrecy on our our true identity and our true history and if i might add do you see any role for artificial intelligence in the fields of archaeology and anthropology that might aid in that regard? Well, I, I think we're already dealing with artificial 
intelligence in the sense that as conscious selves, I think we really do have a kind of eternal intelligence, an eternal mind, an eternal consciousness. And on this level of reality, we identify not with our real self, with our real intelligence and with our real mental capacities and capacities for love, but we're dealing with a reflection you know, that we identify with. You know, we tend to identify with the particular bodily vehicle that we, we occupy. And instead of the real self, which is within, so I think a lot of artificial, we're already kind of dealing with a kind of artificial intelligence in that we've built up a whole civilization based on this false identification. But, uh, you know, it's a question that I'm really interested in, you know, artificial intelligence, perhaps there is some use for it, but now, I was at a conference in, it was in Encinitas, California. It was a, put on by uh, a group that specializes in consciousness studies. And some of the leading scientists involved in that field from around the world were there, either physically or remotely. And one of them said something very interesting. Now, she was working on what she called artificial emotions because uh, she was thinking, okay, we've got artificial intelligence which can organize words and ideas and things like that. But there's people have a dimension of their lives that goes beyond intelligence, you know, the ability to organize and analyze things. There's emotions and feelings. So her study is involved in getting uh, machines, in other words, computers, robots, things like that, to recognize emotional states and interact with someone, not just on the basis of whatever they type and to chat whatever version you want to say 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 that you know some artificial intelligence uh, uh, program but she wants these machines to be able to recognize analyze human emotional states and then communicate with people in such a way that that manipulates their emotions and takes advantage of them. And I think it's, in one sense, it's very interesting and exciting. But on the other hand, it's very scary, you know, because, you know, politicians, uh, corporations, they have a whole science of, you know, through advertising and communication and things like that, of dealing 
you know, with people's emotions to get them to do certain things. So to have this kind of thing being worked on um, in the same way that AI is being worked on and unleashed upon the world, I don't know if I would want to be confronted with a, a machine that was analyzing my emotional states and trying to manipulate them in order to uh, get me to do something. Well, but anyways, the whole whole field. Well, this is maybe this is the next cataclysm. <laughs> uh, always the specter of nuclear war, I suppose, but there's also the specter of uh, you know our losing our humanity. And perhaps this is the last fully human generation. Maybe this is our cataclysm. Maybe the inventor of um, our machine learning and artificial in intelligence would echo the words of uh, Oppenheimer from the Hindu text, now I become death. Well, Michael, um, yeah. again, let me uh, remind people, you are appearing at the Stairway to the Stars happening the 10th, 11th, and 12th of uh, November at the Luxar Hotel on the Las Vegas Strip. And more information can be found at DisclosureFest.org. DisclosureFest.org. Um, any future uh, events you'd like to mention as well? The end of this month, I'm going to Zurich in Switzerland and uh, at a place near there called Winter Tour. I'm taking part in a conference on science, spirituality, and world peace, where I'll be talking about some of the things I mentioned today. Uh, and after that, I'll be going to Budapest, Hungary, to take part in a conference there. So I don't know how many people are going to make it to uh, Europe, but maybe you've got some listeners over, over there, and yeah, they could... Check in my website, mcremo.com, you know, for information about those events. All right. And we can find those links, your link, mcremo.com, uh, humandevolution.com, myscience, myreligion.com, forbiddenarchaeologist.com. All of those links are in the episode notes right here on Strange Planet. Michael, a delight to, to speak with you again. Thank you so much. Thank you. A new Richard Serrett's Strange Planet drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday.